All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 22, as we continue our journey through First and Second Peter this summer. I appreciate um, Todd preaching a couple of weeks ago and him filling in as uh, I was out for the week on vacation. So thank you, Todd. Appreciate uh, your ministry of the Word uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we were at church at the fair. Uh, so if you came here and you found the doors closed, well, you would have found the doors closed uh, we apologize for the inconvenience, but we saw God do great work uh, and effective ministry uh, through church in the fair, and we were encouraged by that last week. But let's continue in 1 Peter chapter 3 this week, uh, talking about the victorious Christian life, the victorious life we have in Christ. There's a hip-hop song that's been out for a little while. You might be pretty familiar with it. I would expect most of you would be familiar with this song. I don't know the title of the song, but the the, um, the chorus is very catchy. All I do is win, 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 win. Who's heard it? Nobody wants to raise their hand. You've all heard it. All I do is win, win, win. The students, certainly you guys have heard this song, right? Todd, he's giving me a bashful yes. Is it inappropriate for an illustration? No, absolutely not. Okay. We love winners. We love winners. And this song is celebrating winning in life, winning with money, winning with job, winning in romantic relationships, not healthy ones, but winning. And, and, and people, we love this song because we love this notion that I go get it and I win and I conquer and we, we actually really love this. We don't watch sports on TV to see who loses. Unless you're Todd watching the Patriots apparently, then you're watching to see who loses, right? We want to see a winner and sometimes if somebody wins in great fashion, uh, we even celebrate that as a lifelong Blazers fan in the 90s watching Michael Jordan beat the Blazers over and over and over again. But at a certain point, he was just so good, you're like, it's okay. It's just fun to watch somebody win. Well, the, in life, it's sometimes easy to understand what winning is. In sports, it's the scoreboard. Whoever has the most points at the end wins the game. In, with finances, it's whoever has the most. It's a job, whoever has the most important job. And, and you may establish different things in your mind. Here's what it looks like to win in my life. And the people Peter was writing to, they were under a lot of suffering and pressure. And they were looking at their Christian life and going, we don't think we're winning. We think we might be losers. Everybody around us is winning and we're the minority and we're under pressure and we're under persecution. We must be doing something wrong or God must be doing something wrong are we winning? What does it look like to live the victorious Christian life? And thankfully, Peter, in 1 Peter, and really it's the whole book, but the, his argument comes to a culmination in this passage and the one we're going to look at next week, defines for us what the victorious Christian life looks like. So let's look at just a couple of things here, verses 13 through 17. The victorious Christian life, the victorious life is experienced even in suffering. The victorious life in Christ is experienced even in suffering. Read again with me verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. They were under suffering, and they're saying there must be something wrong if we're suffering. And he's saying, no, actually, just because you're under difficulty and pressure and suffering and life is being life, doesn't mean you are failing as a believer. Victory in Christ is experienced even in suffering. When World War II ended, there were millions and millions and millions of soldiers on the other side of the ocean, 
The war ends, and now it was time for them to come home. Well, it would be one thing if there was a few dozen soldiers on the other side of the ocean, send a boat over, bring them back. But there were millions and millions of soldiers on the other side of the ocean, and it became a major problem. How do you get all these soldiers back to the United States when it was over? And actually became quite a problem for many politicians. It took four months to get the soldiers home. Boats going over, going back. It was in the newspaper. The soldiers sitting there doing, there's nothing to do. The war is over. They're sitting on bases, and there's no PS4 or Xbox. What do you do? And they were getting antsy, and they were like, when are we going to go home? And they're tired of military food, and they're ready to get home and get on with their education and get on with their life. And month after month is going by, but did they win the war or not? The war was won. Victory was done. And they said, well, victory must mean we get to go home. Yes, you do, but, it's going, but you're not home yet. Victory, even for those four months, means waiting until those slow boats from the United States will get here to take you home. What we need to understand is victory is done at the cross. The war is won. Victory is certain. And we say, well, then everything must be hunky-dory, right? No, because we're not home yet. Victory in Christ is experienced in the waiting here, even when we experience suffering in this fallen world. Look what the text says in verses 13 and 14 and 15. Have no fear, nor be troubled. Honor Christ and be prepared to tell the people around you for the hope that you have in you. So these Christians were doing what many of us do when life gets awful. The wheels fall off, health fails, money fails, people fail, who knows what it is, maybe all of them at once. And you generally, if you're a human, ask one of two questions as a Christian. What did I do wrong to deserve this? Anybody asked that question before? Right? Or the other question is, what is wrong with God that this is happening? Or if you're like me, you're asking both at the same time. And what Peter is saying and what the Spirit is telling us through the Scripture is, maybe, or certainly, in Christ, neither are wrong, but the victory we have in Christ can be experienced even when the wheels come off of life. That it doesn't mean we've sinned and so God is beating us up. And it doesn't mean God has failed. It may mean that the victory we're going to experience in our Christian life is going to be experienced in difficulty. Now certainly none of us would choose that, would we? But God knows what's best. And what Peter wants these believers to know and for us to know is when things are difficult and trying, it doesn't necessarily mean something is wrong. It may mean we need to have a better understanding of what victory looks like in Christ. He says, as Christians, we can live in a fallen world, in a world of brokenness and difficulty, and still have hope, and still have anticipation for the future, still endure suffering and have joy and peace in Christ alone. In fact, you would suggest that even in suffering, we bless others. Even in difficulty, we honor Christ. Jesus touches on this as well in Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 21 through 23. I think they're going to be on the screen. You can follow along with me. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. 
Now that's funny. Jesus, no, no, seriously, bro. But before we throw Peter on the bus, have you ever had? Have you ever rebuked God in one of your prayers? Certainly you have. If you haven't, try it. The, the psalmists do it all the time. God, where are you? You're absent. I'm praying and you're not hearing. So it happens. But Peter, taking the Lord aside, letting him know how salvation is going to work. And Jesus says this, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. What are the things of God? God's will being done in and through suffering. What are the things of man? Whatever makes suffering less. Things of God. Whatever accomplishes God's purposes in and through difficulty from time to time. Things of man. Whatever makes life easier. Jesus wants us to look at suffering through a whole different perspective than we are used to. His view of suffering is, it's not the exception, it's the plan. To quote from a line from a movie and rework it, and this may offend you, I hope it does a little maybe. I love the smell of suffering in the morning. It smells like victory. And I mean that maybe to be kind of silly if you've seen Apocalypse Now. If you haven't, right, you're going to go rent it after. If for no other reason to see Harrison Ford when he was 20, right? We hear suffering. We say, well, what, what's wrong? We hear suffering, and it's the stench of death. There must be something wrong if, if difficulty has encountered my life. I've, if something is going on that is causing me uh, pain and suffering, something must be wrong. And Jesus flips that on his head, and he says, oh, there's suffering? Well, that's victory. Oh, victory is about to happen because things are getting difficult because God's plan for Christ is to achieve his victory through suffering, not in spite of it. He wants to give us a new view of suffering in our life. In fact, for us to see suffering as a blessing because it's a primary way in which God works out his purpose in our lives. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Another look at this. Jesus is talking to his disciples about uh, those who would oppose the message of the gospel and those who would persecute them, and this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Have no fear of them. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is calling his believers, his followers, his apostles to stop looking at the world and the suffering it can bring upon us and, and being afraid of it. Well, if I don't handle myself right in the world, I'm going I'm to suffer and I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to have things taken from me. And Jesus is saying, why are you fearing the world? What's the worst thing the world can do to you? What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us? We die. As Christians, dying is not the end, it's the beginning. And Jesus is saying, instead, as we live as believers in a world that can bring suffering, instead, honor Christ. Have a fear of the Lord that recognizes his way is better, even when it takes us through suffering in this life. Fear God only. Don't fear the things of this world. Honor Christ in our heart by seeking righteousness and seeking genuine hope in him. Okay, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Have you already lost it? It's in the same spot. It hasn't moved. 
Look what he says in the midst of suffering. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So here's where how Peter's argument is going here. He says, listen, as Christians, you're discouraged because things aren't going well in your life, and you thought if you prayed a certain prayer, read a certain verse, uh, waved your hands in the air a certain way, all the money in the world would come your way, you'd never get sick again, and everybody would love you. Now you've become a Christian, and you're following him, and it turns out things aren't going well, and suffering is coming, and you're praying and asking for God, but you're still sick. You're praying and asking for God's help, but you still don't have enough money. You're praying and asking God for help, and you're still not getting along with some people. And Jesus is saying, you may not be failing like you think. You may, in fact, be living the victorious Christian life in and through difficulty and suffering. As a matter of fact, in the midst of suffering, you will have the most opportunity to share with people around you that why you have hope. And that's what he says. Be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason that you have hope. Be ready to explain your hope in Jesus. But notice how he says it. It's so interesting. Make a defense for the hope you have. So what does that conversation look like? You're standing at Starbucks because you like their coffee. And a person says to you, why do you have hope? You shouldn't have any hope. You say, well, nobody would ask that question. Well, that's what he's saying here. He says, make a defense for your hope. Meaning, from the outside world, anybody looking at your life would say, oh, my land, that person shouldn't have any hope. But they do. It bothers me. I'm going to go make them prove to me why they have hope. They must be high. That's got to be it. They're drunk. And I'm joking, but that's what happened in the scripture before. People have uh, acted by uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're accused of being drunk. And so somebody says, what's wrong with you? Your life is a train wreck. You shouldn't have any hope. What's your problem? He said, well, let me explain to you why I have hope. Jesus died for me. I'm going to live forever. Life can go crummy. It only lasts 40, 50, 60 years maybe. Big deal. I'm going to live forever. He's saying, be ready to explain your hope in Jesus. Be ready to explain we have new life and it will last forever. Be ready to make a defense for the hope you have. The victorious life is lived in suffering, and in the midst of suffering is when we will have our primary opportunity to explain to people around us why we have hope. Why would I say that? Let me explain. If our hope is somewhere other than Jesus people are not going to be asking us where our hope came from. If our hope is in our security, our safety, or if our hope is in our health or our family, or if our hope is in our job or our money or our home, we're going to have the same kind of hope literally everybody else is having. That's not, that doesn't require a defense. Why are you hopeful? Oh, yeah, I just got promoted, and so I'm going to be able to afford the car I wanted to buy. I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's going to be a good week. Well, nobody's going to ask you to defend that hope. Every commercial on TV tells people that's where hope is. We haven't presented anything that's astonishing, that requires defense. That's the culture around us. What he's asking us to do is to live a life that is so marked by hope in Christ alone that people are annoyed by it and say, what's your problem? You shouldn't have any hope. They say, well, how do we do that? The people he was writing to, it wasn't a problem because all of their other hopes have been taken away. And this is why we're saying the victorious life is experienced in suffering because when the wheels come off our life and the people around us know it, those are going to be some of the greatest opportunities we have to explain our hope. 
when all of our other hopes fall away and the people around us are watching for us to fall and they say, where's your hope coming from? You've lost everything. He said, well, I have lost everything and it's awful, it's horrible, but I still have hope because that stuff wasn't where my hope is. So some of us are a little bit nervous about explaining why we have faith in Christ. Some of us get a little intimidated about sharing our faith. So I want to let you off the hook. Now, I'm being sarcastic here. Somebody told me that they missed my sarcasm at church at the fair last week. So well, I only had five minutes. There's not enough time um, to work in sarcasm. Today, we have plenty of time because we're not done until two. So here we go. You will never have to explain your hope in Jesus if your hope is in other things. So if you're worried about having to explain why you trust Jesus, don't worry about it if your hope is somewhere else. Nobody's going to ask. Nobody's going to ask. You say, well, that's offensive. I didn't write it. This is what Paul, Peter, uh, Peter is saying, I should say. Peter is saying to people who have lost everything, you are going to be asked why you have hope because they're looking at your lives and they're going to be saying, you shouldn't have any hope right now. You should be under the table in the fetal position sucking your thumb. What are you doing out here blessing the community in joy? What are you doing out here serving people who are causing you a hard time? Well, here, let me explain the hope I have. It comes from Christ. The victorious life is experienced even in suffering. Many of us are, get very discouraged in our Christian life when thing goes, things go wrong because our assumption is there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our relationship with God. There's something wrong. We've done something so bad, God has abandoned us. We need to understand biblical understanding of suffering. Just because difficulty is encountered in our life doesn't mean something is wrong. In fact, more than likely, it means something is very right. And the victorious life is experienced even in suffering. Okay, question then becomes, how do we find strength and endurance, and how do we suffer victoriously? Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to us God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the victorious life is experienced even in suffering, and the victorious life is built upon Christ's suffering. So we understand we can live in victory even when things are extraordinarily difficult, but the foundation of our strength to be able to live in victory even in suffering is Christ's suffering. We need to understand Jesus' suffering. So here's two things that are um, painful that I want to compare for you. One is working out. It is painful. You say, well, working out isn't painful. Well, I would suggest you're not doing it right. It should, in fact, cause a little bit of discomfort if you're working out correctly. Um, the other thing that is painful is donating a kidney. These two things are painful. I've done one of them. I've never donated a kidney. Um, working out is painful. Donating a kidney is painful. But look at the difference between the two. One of them benefits me. One of them benefits someone else. And when we compare Christ's suffering to the suffering we endure, we endure suffering, and often we say, okay, i got to do this because it's going to make me stronger, it's going to make me better, or the light at the end of the tunnel, whatever it might be. Jesus' suffering was done in, in order to benefit others, primarily us. Christ's suffering was intended to be victorious for our benefit. He suffered for us because of our sin. So just a quick story. We just need to 
just very quickly cover the entire Bible beginning in Genesis. It won't take us long, I promise. No, it's going to take forever, i got to be honest. Um, we sin. Begin in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. We took the fruit, we ate it, we walked away from God. And rebellion against God severs our relationship with God, which nowadays, if you have a relationship on earth, big deal, okay, it's, it's kind of lame, wish we got along better, but we don't, big deal. The problem with breaking your relationship with God is God is our source of life. The Bible says he is the author of life, he is our source of life, so when we cut off our connection with God, we have cut off our connection to life. And the Bible makes it quite clear, anyone who sins is going to eventually die. And in fact, that's been proven over and over and over again. Every single person who has ever lived, I'm just checking, I'm just thinking through. Yep, everybody's died. We've said it before, the mortality rate of this planet is unbelievable. I'm beginning to think this place isn't safe. It, it actually seems like everybody's dying. And, the, and this isn't an accident, isn't, shouldn't be unusual to us. The reason is, is because we cut off our relationship with God. So in order for us to have life, that connection with God has to be restored. How do we do that? We can't do that. So the story of the Old Testament, one of the things we learn about the tabernacle and the temple and the offering system that we see in the Old Testament is this. It is possible for a substitute to stand in to pay for our disobedience. So in the Old Testament, they would offer bulls, and they would offer rams, and they would offer goats, and they would offer sheep. They would offer birds as offerings to pay for and atone for their rebellion against God so that their relationship with God would be restored. And how did that work? Not terribly well. The problem is the blood of a goat or a bull or a ram could not fully cover sin, so they had to keep offering over and over and over again. You're walking down the street, you stub your toe, you say a bad word. Oh, great. Going off of the goat. There we go. Off of the goat. Turning away from the altar. Stub your toe again and say a much worse word. You're like, this is a problem. I don't have this many sheep. They have to be offered over and over and over. So it's, it doesn't work. So the Bible is intending to communicate to us, among other things, a substitute can stand in for our penalty but we have yet to see a substitute that's good enough. Then we see in the New Testament, Jesus is born. God, who is always, ha always has been, is born, comes as a man, and lives a perfect life, and he doesn't sin the entire life. He has never sinned. He never will sin. And he is God. He stands in as our substitute on the cross. So much like a, a goat on the altar in the Old Testament could be offered for sin, Jesus is offered as a sacrifice for our sin. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, his sacrifice finishes the job. In fact, to quote him on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. He was able to pave the price because he is God. He can bear on himself the entirety of our sin. And because he is God, death could not hold him. So three days later, he rose from the dead in victory. He conquered sin it's done. He conquered death. Death is dead. He conquered the devil. Complete and total victory for us. His suffering was a substitute so that we would not have to pay for our own sin. Look what it says in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. How many times does Christ have to suffer? Just the one time. Takes care of the, the whole deal. The righteous 
for the unrighteous. Who is righteous? Christ. Who is unrighteous? Did you say the name of the person next to you? That's what most of us do. Who's an, I am unrighteous. You are unrighteous. We're in unrighteous in different ways, but we all need Christ's atonement, his sacrifice. The Bible makes it quite clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have rebelled against God. So Christ, who is righteous, who knew no sin, dies on the cross and bears on himself our sin. He became sin for us. So we can make this great exchange. He takes our sin off of us, and what do we get? A coffee cart at the info kiosk. No, we get his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is given to us when we believe. We no longer are identified as those who have sinned. We are identified as those who have received Christ's righteousness. God, by his spirit, is raised from the dead. He put to death death. He put to death the flesh, and he is made alive in the spirit. He did all of this to pay for our sin. And what was his purpose? Look at it. It's the middle of the verse. That he might bring us to God. His purpose is to restore the relationship that was broken. Remember when I talked at the beginning of the Bible? We broke that relationship with God, and what happens when you no longer have a relationship with God? You're dead, because God is the source of life. So Jesus, by his sacrifice, brings us to God. That relationship is restored. So what do we have again? Life. And when does that life go away? Never. That relationship is restored by Christ. Death is dead. We are alive in him. So his righteousness is for us, but the way we receive it is by faith. The way we uh, count it accredited to us is simply a matter of trust. Do I trust that Jesus died for me? Good news, Jesus died and will give righteousness to anyone who will receive it. Bad news is this. To receive it, you have to admit you need it. To receive it, you must admit Christ had to die on the cross for your sins because your sin was that bad. It is received by faith. So the victorious life is built on Christ's suffering. He suffered in order to gain our victory. We suffer as victors. He suffered to gain the victory. Treaty signed, death is dead, he wins. We suffer as victors. Remember those soldiers stuck on the other side of the ocean when the war was over. Many died in order to achieve that victory. So victory has been achieved. Many suffered for that victory to be achieved. We, though, are those now who suffer not to achieve victory. We suffer as victors. We have won when we experience life in Christ. We have hope. The victorious life is built on Christ's suffering. Like I've said before, what we mentioned earlier, God's purpose is to accomplish his will through suffering, whereas our purpose is to minimize suffering to the greatest degree that we can. I am grateful that Christ did not follow our ways. Because had he lived his life to avoid suffering, we would not have life. He lived his life to accomplish the will of God, which was through suffering. The victorious life is experienced even in suffering. How do we have the strength to endure that? When we build our life 
on the suffering Christ suffered for us. Our life is built on Christ's suffering, and that's how we can live and experience the victorious life. All right, let's look at the last section, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Maybe when I was reading it, this is the one section you were interested in because it talked about Noah and baptism and some very strange things. But this is what we're really getting at. The victorious Christian life, as we mentioned, experienced in suffering, is built on Christ's suffering, but finally this, anticipates future glory. Victory, we live in victory even in our suffering, but we also have victory in glory. What is it, what I mean by this? We have victory today even when things are difficult, but our victory in Christ also includes a future glory. So our victory is not merely a future glory, kind of a delayed gratification. Okay, just bear down, deal with it, because someday things are going to be better. We have victory both in difficulty, but we will have victory even more so in the glory we experience with Christ in the future. So this is what we see here. Look at verse 19. Christ, it said, well, I'm going to read verse 18 because it's kind of the middle of the sentence. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, most of us, when we read this passage, will have the same kind of response. It's a profoundly theological and spiritual response, and it's this. What in the world are you talking about? And I'm not, I'm not kidding, because one theologian, a guy named Martin Luther, he lived in the 1400s, 1500s, his final, he wrote, wrote on 1 Peter a number of times, this is what he finally said, his last comment on 1 Peter chapter 3 was this, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm not kidding. He gave up. He said, I have no idea what he's talking about. I think we, have, we can have an idea of what he's talking about, and it is this. We have a victorious life that anticipates future glory because Jesus is raised. Now, think about it this way. What does future glory mean? Uh, recently, the women's national team, the soccer team, won the World Cup. And as is normally the case, when we have a team that wins uh, 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 an important uh, victory, there's a, a parade. This parade was in New York City, like a lot of these parades are held. So they, they have the team go down, just like any other championship team would have been. They march down, people throw confetti, and yay, we won. It's a victory parade. And what a victory parade is for is to receive glory for the victory that was achieved, to relish in the victory, and to remind all of your opponents... You lost. There is no argument here. We had more points at the end of the game. We won more games at the end of the tournament. We won. You lost. We're winners. You are losers. You can say it. That's what they are. You know, losing, it's not a negative thing. It's just loser is one who loses. It's Don't feel bad for the people who lost. They did their best, allegedly. Um, <laughs> moving on. And we say, well, that seems kind of rude. Jesus, is he really trash-talking? Yes, he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He tells the devil, he tells death, you lost. You are done. I totally obliterated you. There isn't a need for a scoreboard because you scored zero. I have won. He went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What it means is after he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven 
And he declared out loud to every fallen angel, every spirit, every demon, every devil, every angel, mic drop, game over, I killed that thing. I destroyed, I won, total victory, no questions asked, victory parade is on. When's the victory parade? He won't tell us, but it's coming. And what he's saying is, I am proclaiming to all those who are, have been opposed to me, Christ is saying, you must recognize my victory. My victory in glory is completely undisputed. It's a, a, a notion some have said from this passage. I'm only going to touch on briefly because it's distraction. Many throughout history have said that Jesus, while in the grave, went to hell and preached to people in hell the gospel. That's, now that's a problem theologically. We're just going to, Hebrews says it quite, quite plain. Is appointed for man once to die and then what? Wait for the evangelist to show up to preach the gospel to you again? No, that's not what it says. It's appointed for each to, fa- to die once and then face judgment. And it's clearly what he's saying. When Jesus rose from the dead, you remember what happened next? He ascended into heaven. Complete victory over the devil. Complete victory over death. Complete victory over sin. Look at John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. Verse, John chapter 12, 31 and 32 says this. Talking to his disciples. This is before he, had, before he had died. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When will the ruler of this world be cast out? Then? Future? Tribulation? Return to the Lord? No, when is it? Now. He's saying now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He is saying... The victory is done at the cross and the open tomb. It is over. There is no longer a war going on. The game has ended. He ascended to heaven. He is sitting in the victor's chair at the cross, at the resurrection. The devil has lost and has been cast out. And Jesus now has proclaimed to all of eternity, I win, anyone opposed to me has lost. And that's what, this is what it's saying here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. The, and our victorious life is built on Christ's suffering, but also anticipates that one day we are going to participate with him in that great glorious victory parade. Now, Noah in Asia Minor, which is where these recipients of this letter were living, Noah in Asia Minor was big time. Everybody loved Noah. I don't know why wasn't even really a Jewish culture. There was Noah printed on some of the Roman coins. So everybody was into Noah. And so it's not unsurprising at all that Peter, when writing to Christians who are living this area, would refer to Noah, knowing that there's a lot of stuff going on about Noah in that culture. And so he says, listen, remember back to Noah? He built an ark. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Like at least a day. I think he got it at Ikea, and the instructions were wrong. And then they didn't fit right. It was really frustrating. So he, he built it for a long time. And did he build it in the water? I can't remember. How did that go? No, so he's building a boat in the middle of the land. And everybody's walking around saying to Noah, that is a really nice boat. No, I think you might have miscalculated a little something. You're not very close to where boats normally operate, which is the water. And Noah said to them, there will be water here one day. You are going to ha- want to be on my boat. 
He preached the good news to those people saying salvation from judgment is on the ark. To stay out of the ark is to experience judgment. And so uh, Peter here is connecting this truth, this using an illustration from the Old Testament that the, the readers would re relate to and saying, listen, God showed patience to the people of Noah's time. He didn't build the boat on Monday and send the flood on Tuesday. It took a long time for it to be built, and in patience, the people were proclaimed, if you want deliverance from God's judgment, leave the world, enter the ark. And so the point he is making is, is quite simple, even though the illustration is a little bit hard for us to get our head around. He's saying, God is doing the same thing today. Why is God leaving us in suffering? Why doesn't he just show up and fix things? Why doesn't he just show up and make everything right? Because thankfully, he is more patient than you and I. He, in patience, is allowing the good news to be proclaimed over and over and over again that more might escape judgment and enter into life in Christ. So the point is this. God is patient that more might be get saved, but he, he's also making this point to the, the readers of the letter in that time. Eight people got on the boat. Most people didn't. And these people in persecution were under the impression, we're the minority. The culture is against us. Everybody's against us. So how could there possibly be victory when most people think we're crazy? And Peter is saying, most people thought Noah was crazy until it started raining. And he's encouraging them that with that same point, you're suffering, you're in difficulty, the culture no longer sees you as a benefit to culture, but sees you as a burden to culture, guess what? You're in good company because that's what Noah experienced before the flood. So be encouraged. Anticipate future glory. There will be a time when the Lord is going to return and judgment will come to this world. And on that day, everything we worried about will fall away. We're, not gonna be, we're no longer going to be worried about being stuck in a boat that's not in the water. We're going to say, I am so thankful I was in the one thing that provided life, and that is Christ himself. Look at verse 21. Baptism corresponds to Noah. It saves you, not because it cleanses you, but it saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he, again, he's making a point here. Baptism is the way in which we demonstrate outwardly that we want our glory in Christ. Remember, baptism back then was a much different uh, had, had different significance than it does today. For somebody to get baptized in the first century was an outward statement, I'm leaving my culture to join this culture. My primary point of identification in baptism is no longer a, per, a Greek in Asia Minor. When I'm baptized, I'm no longer primarily identified as a person who lives in Philippi or Ephesus. I am primarily identified as a person who is a Christian. And that could have significant implications on a person's life in business, in employment, in their community. And what he is saying is, listen, in being baptized, you are saying out loud to the world around you, I don't need my glory in a world that is dying. I'll take my glory in a Savior who never dies. I will take my glory with him, and I will demonstrate my loyalty to him through baptism. And our salvation, of course, is not just by getting dunked in the water. Our salvation is in the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. The victorious life, three things, is experienced even in suffering. 
If you're discouraged today because your life is kind of a, a mix of good and bad, mostly good or mostly bad, or so much bad you can't see the good, and you say, like many of us, we go, man, I must have done something terrible. God must be really peeved. We can throw that out. God put all of his punishment for you, put it on Christ. Now he just comes to us and says, no, you can live in victory in life, even in suffering. Secondly, the victorious life is built on Christ's suffering. He is our example, but more than that, his suffering and his resurrection is what gives us the power to endure in suffering. And finally, the victorious life anticipates a future glory. All right, three, three or four questions to give you just as a way of sort of maybe uh, applying this in your own life. First question. I always come up with these questions, then when I read them up here, I decide I don't like them because I find them too convicting. Um, in our life as Christians, do we have room? Do we have a category? Do we have a way of understanding difficulty? Do we have room in our life for suffering? Do we have an understanding, in fact, that suffering and difficulty is not the exception, it's a vital part of living a victorious Christian life? Now, I know you don't like that. If I were making it up, I wouldn't say that. I would say silly things like just pray a few words and plant a seed and blessing will come. And the Bible doesn't say that, though. The Bible says the blessing is living in Christ and living in Christ in victory includes and in fact very likely will include suffering do you have room in your christian thinking for understanding that suffering is a vital part of victory in christ all right next question thank you're saying thank you move on all right next question is a little bit easier when do you want your glory when do you want to be the man or the lady when do you want your glory? And Jesus answers simply this. If you want glory that lasts, you want it then, not today. Do we want what we want today? Do we want to be acknowledged today? Do we want our life to demonstrate our greatness today? Do we want to be free from suffering and free from want and free from difficulty so that others might look on our life and say, wow, look at the beauty that is that person's life. That person is amazing. Or will we take our glory when Christ comes? When do you want your glory? It's good to want glory. It's better to want glory that never fades. And the day he returns when we're in him, that's when glory will never fade. When do you want your glory? Our, our tendency is to want glory right now. All right, uh, just two more questions. And by two, I really mean two. I'm being serious. I'm not lying this time. Actually, the first question has three parts, so <laughs> I, in fact, am lying right now. All right. Did Jesus suffer for you? And of course, we're in church. Everybody says, oh, of course, he suffered for me. So here's the question. Of course, Jesus suffered for me. Which part? Like, he suffered for me because life is just generally hard, but the really difficult part of dying on the cross, that was for my buddy who's a really gnarly sinner. Me, I really just needed sort of a buffing. My life is pretty good. So here's the thing. As long as we didn't really need Jesus to suffer because our sin really is not that bad, then any suffering we encounter in Christ will be undeserved. We say, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? 
I'm not the bad guy. I'm in church quite a bit. I volunteer. I help my neighbor. I'm the good guy. If you want to bring bad stuff on somebody's life, I've got a list of people that deserve it. Jesus, you died for me. But remember, I didn't need the whole thing. I just needed the part where sort of the cross was uncomfortable on your back. My neighbor needed you to die because he's really awful. And this is what happens in our self-righteous thinking. We think, I don't deserve suffering because I'm pretty good. But if Jesus had to suffer for me, any opportunity he gives me as a blessing to participate with him in suffering before his glory is a blessing. As long as I'm not bad enough to really need his suffering, any suffering he sends my way, I'm going to argue about. Did Jesus suffer for us? If, in fact, I needed the whole ball of wax, his whole life of difficulty, his whole time on the cross, his whole resurrection, because I really did rebel that badly, when he sends suffering to me, we can rejoice the way the apostles did at the beginning of Acts and say, it's unbelievable he would count us worthy to suffer along with our Savior. If Jesus suffered for us, then we can count it a joy to suffer with him. Okay, last thing. Now, to save myself here, um, it's not really a question, so it doesn't count. Um, I need to say this because we don't believe it. The devil lost. Like, like it, it's not sort of like maybe it could go one way or the other. At the cross, he knew, Jesus knew, everybody knew, game over. Sin has lost, the devil has lost, game is over. The devil no longer has any authority. He no longer has uh, the victory. It is completely done. The, now, the time between now and the glory of Christ is just an opportunity for Christ to bring as many as will receive him into the kingdom. But now what the devil does is spends all of his time trying to convince winners that they are losers. That's his primary job is to be telling you over and over and over again, you're a loser. Has anybody ever felt that way as a Christian? That wasn't Jesus. He won. He gave you the victory. You've got a giant W on your, whatever that is. And so all the devil has on us now is to tell us over and over again, oh, you did that again? Oh, really? That's what loser Christians do. Because winner Christians don't struggle with that sin. Oh, you lost your temper again. Oh, you gambled your money away again. Oh, you got drunk again. You are a loser. Right? Nobody ever heard that? Because the point's going to kind of fall flat if nobody here is struggling with sin. And you say, oh, so it's okay to struggle with sin? We're going to. Well, what difference does it make if it's okay or not? We're going to struggle with sin. The question is, in Christ, as one who struggles with sin, am I a winner or a loser? Are you a winner or a loser in Christ as one who struggles with sin? That's the question. The devil wants to convince you you're a loser, and Jesus will tell you over and over and over again, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He has achieved the complete and total victory on the cross and with the open tomb, and anyone who is in Christ has participated with him in victory, and that victory is certain. And the only way the devil can get his hooks into us is to lie to us about who we are. 
If you struggle with who you are in Christ, just go home today and read Ephesians chapter 1 and be reminded again of all the things that become true of you the moment you put your faith in Christ. The devil has lost and now spends all of his time trying to convince winners they are losers. In Christ, we have the victory. Victorious life, what are the three things? Is experienced even in suffering. You don't like that one, I know, keep moving. Is built on Christ's suffering and finally anticipates his future glory.